0: All right, let's continue our discussion of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. All right, the section that starts is called The Last Night. Utterson is woken by Poole, who is uh, uh, Dr. Jekyll's butler, who is insisting that he come to the house, and he says that he suspects that there has been some foul play. And when Poole... Brings uh, Utterson to the house. He wants him to hear the doc, hear uh, allegedly Doctor Jekyll. And when they hear him, he's locked himself up in the laboratory. Uh, he says, "That's not my master's voice." And well, uh, you know, Utterson is a very rational guy. He says, "Well, if somebody, if you you think that somebody murdered your Doctor Jekyll, why would he stay around in the house? You know, if he was if he was a he's a murderer, he's going to flee." Um and so he gives he begins telling him more about these things. Um he says he saw someone and it wasn't his master. He was wearing a mask, he was short, not tall, like his master. He's uh you know, putting all of these pieces together. And in the middle of page seventeen hundred, Utterson says to Poole, We both think more than we have said. Let us make a clean breast. This masked figure That you saw? Did you recognize it? And of course, he says it was Mr. Hyde. Um, And so he says, Well, you know, I think you're right. I think that, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll Henry has been killed. So they decide to get an axe and break down the door. And it tells him some more things. Uh, He says that once that he heard uh, someone weeping, Poole says he heard uh, the sound of weeping. In there, he could hear the the footsteps and they they come to the door that says, I demand to see you. I give you fair warning. Our suspicions are aroused. I must and shall see you. And from inside, the voice says, Utterson, for God's sake, have mercy. And they hear as they're, they're chopping down the door, they hear a dismal screech as of mere animal terror. Uh, now they call this the, the the cabinet. That's the that's just the it, we. That's not a word that we would use for this. It was it would be like the the, the office uh, uh, connected to the laboratory. When they break in, they find the top of seventeen o two, the body of a man sorely contorted and still twitching. They drew near on tiptoe, turned it on its back, and beheld the face of Edward Hyde. He was dressed in clothes far too large for him. Close of the doctor's bigness, the cords of his face still moved with a semblance of life, but life was quite gone, and by the crushed file in the hand of the strong, and the strong smell of kernels that hung upon the air, Utterson knew that he was looking on the body of a self-destroyer. So Edward Hyde has killed himself, and so they, of course, go searching for the body of Dr. Jekyll. Can't find it anywhere. They do find a will, and this will leaves everything to Utterson. Um, and th- this really throws uh, Utterson for a loop. On page 1703, he says, My head goes round. He, uh, doc, uh, Mr. Hyde, has been all these days in possession. He had no cause to like me. He must have raged, raged to see himself displaced, and he has not destroyed this document. Um so you know he says well, if if Hyde killed Jekyll and he saw this will, why didn't he destroy it he was He would be the the heir in the previous will uh It makes no sense and then they find a a, a note from Henry Jekyll uh, he tells him first read the confessions that he knows that he's received from uh Lanyon, Dr. Lanyon, and then read his own narrative so at this point, essentially the Narrative of the story is over, and all of the rest of this is kind of a flashback we're uh, uh, getting information that we didn't have before, and the story is very carefully structured that way it builds up to this. this is the most exciting part of the story, and so Stevenson saves it for last that 's a big part of why he tells the story the way he does is so that the big you know dramatic scenes can come near the end of the the story and Dr.. Lanyon's narrative starts out with a letter that he got on the tenth of December from Jekyll, who who tells him, "My life, my honor, my reason, all are at your mercy. If you fail me tonight, I am lost." So he tells him, "You know, go to my house, go into you know uh, the my uh, force in my office door, the cabinet door, and uh, meet me at midnight in your consulting room." He tells him what he needs to get. Uh, and so he gets these powders, uh, simple uh, crystalline salt of a white color and a a liquid, a blood red liquor, and then a version book that where he recorded the results of his experiments. And it says here, uh, page 1706, here were a file of, the, of some tincture, a paper of some salt, and the record of a series of experiments that had led, like too many of Jekyll's investigations, to no end of practical usefulness. Well, he turns out not to be right about that. So he is waiting in his, Dr. Lanyon is waiting in his study, and Mr. Hyde shows up. He doesn't, uh, this is the first time that Lanyon has seen him. And again, he has, uh, he notes that he's short, he's a small man, and he has the odd subjective disturbance caused by his neighborhood. Uh, There's a disgustful curiosity Uh, that's aroused for him. And he notices that he's wearing clothes that are much too large for him. Um, So they measure out the uh, salts and pour them into the liquid. It uh, changes color. This is the top of 1708. The compound changes to a dark purple, which faded again more slowly to a watery green. My visitor, who had watched the Metamorphosis, metamorphoses with a keen eye, smiled, set down the glass upon the table, and then turned and looked upon me with an air of scrutiny. So now he's saying, "Well, you know, you, you you're going to see something surprising." And this is, in some ways, this is this scene here is the heart of the story. It's 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 certainly the thing that I think has impressed the uh, our our popular culture. This moment of the transformation from Hyde to Jekyll. So look at how the, it's described. This is, again you know, on page 1708. He put the glass to his lips and drank at one gulp. A cry followed. He reeled, staggered, clutched at the table and held on, staring with in, injected eyes, gasping with open mouth. And as I looked, there came, I thought, a change, he seemed to swell. His face became suddenly black, and the features seemed to melt and alter, and the next moment I had sprung to my fate and leaped back against the wall, my arms raised to shield me from the prodigy, my mind submerged in terror. Oh God! I screamed, and oh God! again and again, for there before my eyes, pale and shaken and half-fainting, and groping before him, With his hands, like a man restored from death, there stood Henry Jekyll. Um, So we see this, again, the the potion, there's a kind of a a scientific uh, mumbo-jumbo about it, but even within the story, it's presented as a kind of a magic. Uh, This is not normal science, obviously. But here's this moment, and what happens, again, his face became black, the features melted, and altered. And so he transforms right before his eyes into Henry Jekyll. Now, this is, again, it's a very archetypal image. It's, uh, in a way, uh, Jekyll and Hyde is a kind of a werewolf story. Uh, the 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 whole uh, archetype of the werewolf is that there's a, a bestial side of man that that uh, he can't fully control, that, that comes out uh you know at the full moon he becomes a wolf um and it's often you know the the werewolf is often a kind of a tragic figure what's different is that as we find out jekyll is doing this deliberately he wasn't accidentally bitten by a werewolf he brought this on himself but the same idea of the the kind of the werewolf of the the uh, the the lower sinful bestial part of man being physically manifested uh, is here, um, and but of course Jekyll has to take this potion to make those transformations happen. Um, so now we understand why Doctor Lanyon was so shaken and so terrified. Actually, it literally killed him. He it was too much of a shock for his system. Um, this is why. This is what he saw that shook him so badly. And finally, the story ends with Henry Jekyll's full statement of the case. So now we're going to fill in all of these details. And look at the, at, at the beginning. We talk about the... Henry Jekyll talks about his own kind of psychology and character. He says, And indeed, the worst of my faults was a certain impatient gaiety of disposition such as has made the happiness of many, but such as I found it hard to reconcile with my imperious desire to carry my head high and wear a more than commonly grave countenance before the public. Now, notice that, first of all, uh, Stevenson is very vague about what this is, a certain impatient gaiety of disposition, uh, he was a party guy I mean, what was he impatient about uh, uh, it, it, gaiety just you know happiness he, he was you know too happy and he says it wouldn't have been a problem it isn't a problem for most people it makes me a lot of people happy but it wouldn't it didn't him because it was in conflict with his imperious desire to carry my head high to wear a more than commonly grave countenance before the public I wanted to be taken seriously. I wanted to have, you know, public respect. And this part of my nature uh, didn't fit with that. So I had to deny that and, and act like the, the serious, important um, person that I'm supposed to be. It says, Hence it came about that I concealed my pleasures and that when I reached years of reflection and began to look round me and take stock of my progress and position in the world, I stood already committed to a profound duplicity of life, so the split the Jekyll and Hyde split is there already before there is a mr hyde he He has a, a he's leading a double life he, in public he can't acknowledge these pleasures so Jekyll's narrative continues. many a man should have even blazoned such irregularities as I was guilty of, so many people would have made this public but from the high views that I had set before me, I regarded and hid them with an almost morbid sense of shame. It was thus rather the exacting nature of my aspirations than any particular degradation in my faults that made me what I was, and with an even deeper trench than in the majority of men, served in me these. Provinces of good and ill which divide and compound man's dual nature. In, the, in this case, I was driven to reflect deeply and, inadvertently and inveterately on that hard law of life which lies at the root of religion and is one of the most plentiful springs of distress. Though so profound a double dealer, I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest— I was no more myself when I laid aside restraint and plunged in shame than when I labored in the eye of day at the furtherance of knowledge of the relief of sorrow and suffering. So again, think about the psychology here. And he's saying that you know some people w- wouldn't have had a problem with this, but I had to keep it secret. And it's not like I was... Instance, I was not insincere in public. It wasn't like the real me is this dark side, and I, I put on a mask in public. Says, no, they're both me. I mean, I, I, I really like being a respectable doctor and be you know working for charities and doing all that good stuff. But I also like you know walking on the wild side, this darkness here. Now, uh, again, Stevenson won't ever say exactly what it is, what these pleasures are, what this this dark side is that Jekyll is indulging in. Uh, it seems to be something sexual. Uh, he, he talks about his pleasures. And I think, you know, a, 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 I've heard some interpretations that it may be homosexuality. This is the double life that he's leading. He's in the closet, um, I guess in his case, in the cabinet. Um and that could be. That's a that's a fair reading of the text. Though I think it bears uh, mentioning that in Victorian England, any kind of overt sexuality would have been just as shameful. Well, maybe not just as shameful, but would have been shameful. It's just the fact that he has these normal human impulses, but he doesn't want to acknowledge them. I think the idea of something like uh, uh, homosexuality is what he's trying to conceal, something that is, would be shameful in, in his public life, but something that is part of his nature, that he wants to enjoy. Uh, so that is the, the basic psychology of Jekyll before he ever starts any of his experiments. And Jekyll comes to the conclusion that man is not truly one, but truly two, there's a duality in the heart, not just of him, but in all people. It seems to be particularly pronounced in him. Now, this is an idea you have to think about this time. Uh, Freud's idea of the unconscious mind was just beginning to come into the public consciousness. Uh, but it, I think it, it, it resonates here. This, In fact, the idea that uh, Freud had of the id, which is the part of the mind that is just base instincts, really fits with the idea of Dr. Jekyll. Now, Stevenson wouldn't have known Freud uh, or his work, but I think culturally the same ideas are percolating up in this story. And again, I think that's one of the reasons it resonates so powerfully with us even today. And what Jekyll wants to do, the bottom of 1709, he says, if each, I told myself, could but be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable the unjust might go his way, delivered from the aspirations and remorse of his more upright twin, and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path, doing the good things which he had, in which he found his pleasure, and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of this extraneous evil." I think, you know, if, if we could just separate those two things, you know, one could go his way, he could enjoy those things that would be publicly disgraceful, the other part could go and in, enjoy the public life that he, and the admiration that he enjoys, and everything would be fine. So that's what he tries to do in his experiments. And he says on uh, page 710, uh, I not only recognized my natural body for the mere aura and effulgence of certain of the powers that make up, made up my spirit, but managed to compound a drug by which these powers should be dethroned from their supremacy. And a second form and countenance substituted, none, of, uh, none of the le- less natural to me because they were the expression and bore the stamp of lower elements in my soul. So again, his his natural body is just an aura. This is again very kind of uh, fantastical. That uh, it's it's his if he dethrones the higher elements, and from their supremacy, he can let those lower elements take control, and that will literally physically change his body because the the body is just an aura of the powers of your spirit. Uh, apparently, at least in this story, and so he finds. A particular salt which will make this potion work. And look at how he describes what happens when he does this first transformation, the bottom of 1710. There was something strange in my sensations, something indescribably new, and from its very novelty, incredibly sweet. I felt younger, lighter, happier in body, within which I was conscious of heady recklessness, a current of disordered, sensuous images running like a mill race in my fancy, a solution to the bonds of obligation, an unknown but not an innocent freedom of the soul. So this is, you know, the psychology of this. He feels younger, lighter, happier. There's all these disordered, sensual images. Um, Again, it's very... Uh, Carefully parsed language uh, for he's having sexual thoughts, running amok. Um, Freedom of the soul. I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked. Sold a slave to my original evil. And the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. So he knows that he's evil and he likes it. I stretched out my hands, exulting in the freshness of these sensations, and in the act, I was suddenly aware that I had lost in stature. Uh, of course, literally that means that he's shorter, but also he is he's diminished. this is a this is not the full person of Henry Jekyll; this is a tiny subset of him, a part of him that is now in complete control of who he is. Uh, he has uh, he's lost something he's become Edward Hyde. He says in page seventeen eleven the evil side of my nature to which I had now transferred the stamping efficacy was no less was less robust and less developed than the good which I had just deposed again in the course of my life, which had been after all nine-tenths of of life, a life of effort, virtue, and control. It had been much less exercised and much less exhausted. And hence, as I think, it came about that Edward Hyde was so much smaller, slighter, and younger than Henry Jekyll. So again, this, this, this tiny part of so his soul, hasn't, it hasn't lived, as it's, it's, uh, it's, it's smaller, it's less significant. He um, says, and yet when I looked upon the ugly idol in the glass, I was conscious of no repugnance, rather of a leap of welcome. This, too, was myself. and this is interesting, because he is the only person in the whole story who sees Mr. Hyde and isn't repulsed by him. What he se- sees is, this, too, was myself. It seemed natural and human. In my eyes, it bore a livelier image of the spirit. It seemed more express and single than the imperfect and divided countenance. I had been hitherto accustomed to call mine so this is something pure it's not uh imperfect and divided the way a normal person is this is it's it's a, a purely uh, a, a livelier spirit a purer manifestation of who he is he says i have observed that when i wore the semblance of edward hyde that's an interesting way of putting it isn't it he's wearing a semblance uh, none could come near to me at first without a visible misgiving of the flesh. This, as I take it, was because all human beings, as we meet them, are commingled out of good and evil, and Edward Hyde alone in the ranks of mankind was pure evil. So that's what that deformity that nobody could put their finger on was really about, uh, the, the pureness of his evil. And look at what he says at the bottom of 1711. Had I approached my discovery in a more noble spirit, had I risked the experiment while under the empire of generous and or pious aspirations, all must have been otherwise. And from these agonies of death and birth, I had come forth an angel instead of a fiend. So what he's saying is this, this projects or manifests a part of his personality. If he had approached it with uh, that part of him in mind, it would, have man, it would have manifested a purely good version of him. He said, the drug had no discriminating action. It was neither diabolical nor divine. It but shook the doors of the prison house of my disposition. And like the captives of Philippi, Philippi that, that which stood uh, within ran forth. So whatever was there, the prisoner there, kind of uh, once the door was open, ran out. At that time, my virtue slumbered. My evil, kept awake by ambition, was alert and swift to seize the occasion. And the thing that was projected was Edward Hyde. Now, on the top of page 712, Jekyll talks about where he was at this point in his life. He says, my pleasures were, to say the least, undignified, and I was not only well-known and highly considered, but growing towards the elderly man. This incoherency of my life was daily growing more unwelcome. It was on this side that my new power tempted me until I fell in slavery. So Hyde is a way for Jekyll to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to be the respectable, elderly, Victorian gentleman, but he also wants to go out and party every night. And Hyde allows him to do that. Uh, this is when he draws up the will and makes Hyde his, uh, his heir. He's already suspecting that Hyde might take over completely. That, that's a, it, it has to be in the back of his mind if he did that. And look at the bottom of, of 1712 where he describes, uh, goes further about this. He says, the pleasures which I may, made haste to seek in my disguise were, as I have said, undignified. I would scarce use a harder term, but in the hands of Edward Hyde they soon began to turn towards the monstrous. When I would come back from these excursions I was often plunged into a kind of wonder at my vicarious depravity. This familiar this familiar that I called out of my own soul and sent forth alone to do his good pleasure was a being inherently malign and villainous. His every act and thought centered on self "'drinking pleasure with bestial avidity "'from any degree of torture to another, "'relentless like a man of stone. "'Henry Jekyll stood at this t- at times aghast "'before the acts of Edward Hyde, "'but the situation was apart from ordinary laws "'and insidiously released the grasp of conscience. "'It was Hyde, after all, and Hyde alone, that was guilty. "'Jekyll was no worse.' He woke again to his good qualities, seemingly unimpaired. He would even make haste where, it, uh, where it was possible, to undo the evil done by Hyde, and thus his conscience slumbered. So this this double this literal double life that he's leading, you know, if the if the things that Jekyll had done himself, and remember, these are things that he wants to do. Uh, it's just that Hyde takes them and turns them up to eleven. Um. He, if if Jekyll himself had done it, he would feel guilt-ridden. But now, he can say, well, that wasn't me. That was Hyde who did that. You know, you can't hold me responsible for that. Uh, this is exact, of course, and that's exactly why he's doing it. He's doing this so he can sin and not feel guilty about it, uh, to do these, these monstrous things. And he says he's even willing to, you know, as he did at the very beginning of the story, uh, pay for what uh, Hyde has done, because that's okay. What would really rack him is if he felt guilty about it. And since Hyde's the one who's doing it all, why should he feel guilty? And as he says, I thought I sat beyond the reach of fate. I found the perfect solution. But of course, something goes wrong with his plan. as tends to happen, right? He goes to sleep as Henry Jekyll and wakes up as Edward Hyde without taking the potion. This is about two months before the the, the murder happens. And this, of course, just shows him that this part of him is is becoming stronger. Look at uh, 1714. He believed that the balance of my nature might be permanently overthrown, the power of voluntary change be forfeited, and the character of Edward Hyde become irrevocably mine. He says i was slowly losing hold of my original and better self and becoming slowly incorporated with my second and worse so his plan isn't working like he thought it would he can't just keep the two parts of himself separated the the fact the very fact that he's let this evil side of himself out is making it stronger and as he says hide was indifferent to Jekyll. Hyde wouldn't have cared if Jekyll had gone away. But he doesn't want that. As he says, to cast in my lot with Jekyll was to die to those appetites which I had long secretly indulged and had of late begun to pamper. So, again, whatever these sensual pleasures are that he's taking, he's it. He's becoming addicted. I mean, what uh, the... the The word is never used and, in fact, hadn't yet been invented. But what Stevenson is describing here is addiction. Uh, Jekyll has become addicted to the sinful life that he's leading as Edward Hyde. But the murder makes him rethink things. And he decides at the bottom of 1714, I preferred the elderly and discontented doctor surrounded by friends and cherishing honest hopes and bade a resolute farewell to the liberty, the comparative youth, the light step, leaping impulses and secret pleasures that I had enjoyed in the disguise of Hyde. And he says, for two months I was true to my determination. Uh, and he led a life of severity. This is when he was becoming kind of super Jekyll, uh, being even uh, even more charitable, even more sociable, but he says I began to be tortured with throes and longings, as of hides struggling after freedom, and at last, in an hour of moral weakness, I once again compounded and swallowed the transforming draught. So, this is like addiction. He he uh, tries to stay away from it, you know. He he tries to stay on that diet, but. You know, then one night he goes out to McDonald's, right? He's, uh, he's, you know, I'm making light of this. But uh, that's that's the psychological mechanism that's going on here. He can't completely repress. Um, He he can't separate that part of himself, but he can't completely repress it either. It is a part of him. Uh, And so trying to deny it completely, you know, that repression, again, that's a Freudian psychological word that didn't have the same resonance when Stevenson wrote this, but I think it's hard to avoid the idea here that that repression of Hyde just makes him stronger. Um, As he says, my devil had been long caged, he came out roaring. And he says, I had voluntarily stripped myself of all those balancing instincts by which even the worst of us continues to walk with some degree of steadiness among temptations. And in my case, to be tempted, however slightly, was to fall. So this is like what uh, Oscar Wilde, who was a contemporary of Robert Louis Stevenson, said, the only way to get rid of temptation was to yield to it. So that's what he does. Any impulse that he has as Hyde, he indulges in. Uh, and trying to keep him completely under wraps for two months made him even stronger, even came, as he says, he comes roaring back. And remember, this is all before the murder. When the murder happens, he has these relapses and with, with Hyde, but when the murder happens, he can't go back to being Hyde. And he says, 1716, I think I was glad to have my better impulses this thus buttressed and guarded by the terrors of the scaffold. So he's afraid of being executed, so that kind of keeps him in line. But that doesn't work. And look at the bottom of uh, 1716. He says, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I look down my clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hands that lay on my knees was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. So now he is turning into Hyde without the medicine at all, without the potion. Uh, it, the, the repressed Hyde has come and taken over. And this is when he had to send to Dr. Lanyon because he was caught away from home and turned into Hyde and he needed the uh, the potion to be able to change back so we had to send the letter to Lanyon and we we've seen that scene already as things go on he has to take a double dose of the potion to make the transformation back to Jekyll happen again this is like addiction right you know it, it, you have to take more and more of the drug to get the same effect and soon He can't be Jekyll without the drug. It said it was only under the immediate stimulation of the drug that I was able to wear the countenance of Jekyll. At all hours of the day and night, I would be taken with the peremptory shudder. Above all, if I slept or even dozed for a moment in my chair, it was always as Hyde that I awakened. Uh, That's Again, that's symbolically very appropriate, uh, that when he sleeps... When he loses that conscious control, Hyde comes out. He wakes up and he's Hyde. And this is why Jekyll had to conceal himself, why he went into seclusion. And this is why when they saw him in the courtyard at the window, he he wanted to talk to them, but then a look of horror came over his face and he had to leave. He was about to change back into Hyde and he couldn't let them see that. As he says, the power of Hyde seemed to have grown with the sickliness of Jekyll. And certainly the hate that now divided them was equal on each side. With Jekyll, it was a thing of vital instinct. He had now seen the full deformity of that creature that shared with him some of the phenomena of consciousness and was co-heir with him to death. And beyond these links of community, which in themselves made the more uh, poignant part of his distress, he thought of Hyde for all his energy of life as of something not only hellish, but inorganic. So he uh, something unnatural. This was the shocking thing, that the slime of the pit seemed to utter cries and voices, that the amorphous dust gesticulated and sinned, that what was dead and had no shape should usurp the offices of life. And this again, that that insurgent horror was knit to him closer than a wife, closer than an eye, lay caged in his flesh, where he heard it mutter and felt it struggle to be born, and at every hour of weakness and in the confidence of slumber prevailed against him and deposed him out of life. So this is why Jekyll hates Hyde. He sees him as something unnatural. Now, this is very interesting because Jekyll still hasn't acknowledged that Hyde is really a part of him. He sees it as something alien and inorganic, something dead that's taking control of him. Now, it says the hatred of Hyde for Jekyll was of a different order. His terror of the gallows drove him continually to commit temporary suicide, that is, by becoming Jekyll, and returned to his sub, uh, subordinate state of a part instead of a person. But he loathed the necessity, he loathed the, the despondency into which Jekyll had now fallen, and he resented the dislike with which he, he was himself regarded. Hence the ape-like tricks that he would play me, scrawling in my own hand blasphemies on the pages of my books, burning the letters and destroying the portrait of my father, And indeed, had it not been for his fear of death, he would long ago have ruined himself in order to involve me in the ruin. But he goes on, But his love of life is wonderful. I go further. I, who sicken and freeze at the mere thought of him, when I recall the objection and passion of this attachment, and when I know how he fears my power to cut him off by suicide, I find it in my heart to pity him. So, Again, he's not acknowledging that Hyde is him. It's something that he can pity. But he does realize that he has uh, his, a love of life uh, that, that Jekyll has lost. Uh, and the final blow is that it turns out that when he tries to restock the, uh, the, the crystals, the salt that makes the potion work, the, the, it won't work. The, he says the, as he says, I am now persuaded that my first supply was impure, and that it was that unknown impurity which lent efficacy to the drought now uh, drought um so that's very interesting that there was something impure in the ingredients that made Hyde that made made the the transformation work, and without that impurity, it can't work uh, that's wonderfully uh you know resonant with the idea of Jekyll and Hyde themselves that Hyde is an impurity within Jekyll but of course without that impurity they, it doesn't work and it says this then is the last time short of a miracle that Henry Jekyll can think his own thoughts or see his own face uh, so now he, he can't he, he has to have the drug to transform back into Jekyll uh, so Hyde will take over completely and he doesn't know what ha- will happen will Hyde die upon the scaffold I will he find courage to release himself at the last moment? God knows. I am careless of this, uh, Of careless. This is my true hour of death, and what is to follow concerns another than myself. Here then, as I lay down the pen and proceed to seal up my confession, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Jekyll to an end. And so, uh, literally, to the very last, Jekyll Will not accept that Hyde is himself. He says, "This is uh, you know, I, I, this is the end of me. That other guy, whatever happens, he's going to. Uh, uh, that, that's what's happening to somebody else." Uh, of course, that's the same duality that got him in trouble in the first place. That he thought he could just send out Hyde to enjoy the pleasures that he wanted to enjoy and not have any consequences for it. Now, this story has become enormously popular and influential in our culture. It's interesting. There are a number of these kind of gothic horror stories from the 19th century that still resonate, Dracula and vampires, Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster, and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I think in all of those cases, it's because they uh, pinpoint something uh, psychologically that still resonates with us. And... Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde is a wonderful kind of parable about our uh, our duality, uh, but it's also a very interesting comment on the society in which it was written. The whole reason that there has to be a Mister Hyde is because the society in which Jekyll lives won't allow him to enjoy the things he would enjoy, and he says and. We have no evidence to the contrary. We have to kind of take him at his word that they're undignified pleasures, but they didn't become monstrous, in his words, until Hyde took them over. So in the same way that uh, Jekyll is repressing the Hyde part of his personality, the society he lives in, the Victorian society he lives in, is forcing him to repress that. Uh, I think in some ways... Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the most quintessentially Victorian story that came out of the Victorian period because it is all about the effects, the psychological effects of the very kind of rigid Victorian morality and what it had on individuals, that there was a a, a forced people to repress, to lead double lives, to now this you know doesn't mean that it, it would things have been better if they just all let their freak flags fly? probably not, but uh th- this kind of culture lends itself to that kind of repression, and I think Stevenson, from the time it was published, it was a huge bestseller. It really resonated, and I think it's exactly that it's uh, a, about a guy trapped both in his own psyche and in his own culture. And the two mirror each other and resonate together. And that, I think, to a great extent, accounts for what uh, has made Dr. Juggle and Mr. Hyde such a, a lasting work of literature. All right, for next time, I would like you to read a selection of poems by Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, God's Grandeur, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, Spring, The Windhover, Pied Beauty, Felix Randall. Spring and fall, carry and comfort, no worst there is none, and thou art indeed just Lord now Hopkins was a very influential poet, but he was essentially unknown during his lifetime, so his contemporaries didn't you know uh didn't respond to him, but later poetry did in the same way that Browning was a cast a huge. Uh, influence over 20th century poetry. Hopkins did the same in in some very different ways. So think about how Hopkins poetry is different from the Romantic poets. What is uh, different about it? And how is it different from Browning? Uh, What are both the themes and the forms that Hopkins uses that are unique? I would also, it's always a good idea to read poetry aloud It's especially a good idea to read Hopkins poetry out loud. Uh, A part of the the force of it is in the sound of it. So uh, I thank you for your attention this time, and I will talk to you next time about Gerard Manley Hopkins.